No. I'm not worried at all. I rely on God. Allah. Um, so, uh, there is an increased demand of by content creators, uh, whether they're like uh, Muslim, du'at or not, but basically to generate content. So there's a huge like now for people who put themselves out there as quote unquote content creators, mm -hmm. right? That's a nice way of saying that I post videos on YouTube or social media. Uh, there's this big like now um, stress of where am I going to come up with all this content? You know it's what I mean? So you see, you know, people reposting quotes, you see people reposting things from other people, mm -hmm. uh, famous YouTube channels, they'll make like a version of that just to repost the video so they can get. So there's a lot of that going around, you mm -hmm. know, like uh, um, I, I, I was talking to the brothers the other day. It's like this really, you know, one message foundation with Sheikh Uthman gets a, a lot of views, a lot of attention. So there's a lot of like um, channels that try to... Um, you know, live off that cream, so to speak. So, cool. so my question for you, Sheikh, is that what uh, is the etiquette in Islam for referencing? Um, should we seek permission uh, before, like, say, we use somebody else's yeah. content? Um, and um, or should we just use the content and then just uh, reference or do we even need to reference yeah. myself? I've actually experienced that a lot of people have used my content or something I've said, um, you know, in a khutbah or a lecture. And you, sometimes you make it like a really unique analogy or you, or you frame things in a way that, uh, you know, hasn't been framed before. Right. And yeah. unless it's from a, maybe a, a teacher or a scholar, then I would say, this is what so-and-so scholar said, or this is what yeah. uh, so-and-so of my teachers have said. But I've seen people use my content before. Um, I've seen, uh, you know, people have told me that, uh, you know, you'll have people in other uh, fields, like, so for example, the fitness field, and they come up with certain diets and different exercises. And then you'll see other people plagiarize that as if they're because they're trying to promote their own fitness business, yeah. right? So like, this is starting to become quite widespread. What is the Islamic etiquette in regards to that? Well, before I get to that, I mean, yeah. this is plagiarism overall. Okay. Right. Uh, if someone was caught plagiarizing someone's speech, um, articles, research papers, studies, what would there, what would happen? And there'll be, you know, repercussions, consequences. If you're writing a university paper and, and you plagiarized, it'll be marked out and you'll be called out on that and you'd fail your, um, your, your course. Mm. So, it's inappropriate from this perspective, but it's not on account of us having learned this from the West that we should take this into Islam. Islamically speaking, we do have a tradition. Uh, scholars have mentioned it is of the barakah of knowledge. It is of the barakah and blessings of knowledge that you are to attribute every statement to those you took it from. Mm. Right? And uh, there's a whole thing with this. I mean, uh, there were some scholars who were somewhat... Uh, uh, hesitant in doing that not because they felt oh um, I don't want to give credit to someone else but this is in the chain of hadith this is called tadlis the area of hadith where for example a scholar would not want to indicate that he took this hadith from someone else he kind of jumps this to, you know because the shorter the chain of narration the stronger it is so this is something of a, of a pride that I have short chains of narration right so they would kind of smooth it out and cut off the middle middleman so to say Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal never did that even if the person who took the hadith from was less than him in terms of ilm and knowledge, he would still attribute that to that person. No matter how less knowledgeable he was or how many hadith he had overall or how young he was compared to Imam Ahmad, didn't concern him in the least because his concern was that this hadith is authentic. I convey it exactly as I took it with the entire chain of narration, right? That tradition is there to not plagiarize, to always attribute what you've taken to the one you took it from. So let's say you've said something in one of your speeches. I like it. If I'm going to use it from the adab of using your statement, I should say that, you know, I was with Dr. Sayyid, and I actually, uh, this quote I heard, which I believe is very important, and here you go, this is the quote, right? It serves multiple purposes. First and foremost, that you're conveying a bit of knowledge, attributing it, the barakah is there. As well, people make dua for you. Right, and if this is something khair, and the Sheikh has mentioned this, then by right they would be drawn towards this content that is, you know, uh, good overall for the uh, ummah. Alhamdulillah. So that is like you know 
part of what we have in our tradition to attribute statements always, alhamdulillah. So I think today, to an extent, we don't have people doing it that often. Sadly, they'll think, you know, it's me that came up. It's not you that come up with this. I've heard actually full speeches, full mm. on, word per word, as if the person sat down, mm. rehearsed it. And then he's now saying it as if, mashallah, it's him. And it sounds good. But then the worst thing is, not, you know, that uh, you might not get likes or whatever else, but the problem, and this is the worst thing, when people basically call you out on you plagiarizing someone else's speech, where does that put you? You are a fraud. Simple, uh, simply put. So I think this is something we have to have in mind, a tradition that we have to revive in this ummah, yani, subhanAllah. And uh, it starts with talabatul ilm, students of knowledge who are the role models of the communities that they're in. If you're taking something from someone, have the strength to at least say, I took it from so-and-so, alhamdulillah. Even if you don't like the person, have that, you know, the, the decency of saying that, oh, I took it from this, I took it from that. It's not your statement in that. I mean, that, that to me is a straightforward. Do you think uh, part of the reason we see this is that we don't properly deal with our teachers and scholars in the first place? Like we take them for granted or we just use them. Uh, I, unfortunately, I see this culture a lot. Yeah. I see people just using shiuch and scholars. Yeah. Like you use them for their knowledge, but you actually really don't care for them. No. You don't really treasure them. You don't really look after them. You don't try to preserve them. We don't defend them. You know what I mean? Like a lot of those etiquettes are, you know, absent. They're we're devoid of that uh, feeling. I, I do agree with you that that's a proper assessment. And I think um, the problem of plagiarism and uh, ripping uh, mashayikh and ulama's statements and not attributing them to, you know, those ulama and mashayikh, it's based upon the way that we were brought up and, and taught. If you're taught, let's say, and this is not just by the sheikh or by the masjid, by the environment, but within the home itself. If a sheikh is is given little to no regard within the home, oh, you're into that sheikh, okay, whatever, go. Finish your Quran and come back. Or if the parents, for example, they'll go out and say that, oh, um, uh, it's good that you're learning Quran right now, but, you know, it's more important to spend time on your career, your education, your this. You're sidelining the ilm. Then by right, what do you expect of a person when they grow up and they want to basically take something from a scholar, an alim, a sheikh? They're not going to attribute this. They're going to say, well, the field that they're in is laughable. And I've heard people come up to me smiling. And this is, it's a shock because, and then behind, you know, the back, and this is something that I hate, and this, but it happens, unfortunately, where they'll come and tell you that, oh, so-and-so said that the field that you're in is laughable. Anyone can just pick up a book and read it and learn it. And they can preach from a book. So I was like, khair, alhamdulillah, what, what to do? Allah mustaad. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you have that attitude. Definitely. And this is to me a sign of the end of times where there's little to no respect for ulama and mashayikh. Uh, don't get me wrong, there's celebrity mashayikh and, you know, the other mashayikh who do a lot of hard work and teach and they spend a lot of time. So that distinction is there. And I think, subhanAllah, we have to have more respect and love and care for the ulama, the mashayikh that have, you know, taught us uh, from day one, that have brought us up and raised us and reared us with this deen and the knowledge that we have. Alhamdulillah. Allahumma mm-hmm. SubhanAllah, uh, one of the brothers, he mentioned to me how one of the shiuch came to their city to teach uh, a course. And uh, after he taught the course, so it was all day, like a, maybe a weekend course, so the, all day he was teaching. And then at the end of the course, like all the students, they left. So they left. No one stayed with the sheikh to say, you know, do you, take you for dinner, do something with you, spend time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and uh, he said, I, I found that really sad that everyone came to learn and they benefited from him. Mm-hmm. And then they just left. They didn't care whatsoever about the sheikh, you know. You know one of the fields of knowledge that I cannot forget, and this was in our hadith book. Um, when I was doing, uh, this is like a, before university. So it's a grade 8, 9, 10, but it's, we call it shara'i. So basically you're studying... Uh, with a Sharia focus. So you learn the Hanbali Madhab, the ground workings of the Hanbali Madhab. When you took the Hadith, the uh, very first, I think, 110 to 200 pages almost in, the, in that book, were all on etiquette of a Talib al-Ilm. Right? A Hadith pertained to it. Examples from the Seerah of Rasulullah sallallahu It was amazing. To me, at that time, I thought, why, why would you? Everyone knows these things are a given. But the Shaykh went into detail, discussed the issues, and spent so much time on it. Only afterwards, that was when I was in grade 10. Years after, back maybe 15 years after Dr. Sayyid, 
I think back and think to myself, subhanAllah, that was so useful because now everything that that, that shaykh, may Allah Jalla want to bless him and give him khair in dunya and the akhirah, if he's still alive, everything he taught me, I'm seeing before me. And I have to take those points and put them in my students to rear them in this way where they had that respect. It's not because you are who you are, but because you carry the, the Quran and the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, that respect should be there for the ilm that you carry, right? So it was profound. And I kind of thought back to myself, I had to teach my kids this. And, and I'm in my, in, in my halaqas and with the uh, you know, brothers in my community. I do make a point of teaching these. I mean, not you know, all at once, but you know, you kind of infuse mm. certain elements of this in the topics that you teach at the uh, masjid. And I do have a lot of brothers who come back, and you know, they're, they they're thankful because it, it brings back memories for them too from when they were studying. Mm. Subhanallah, Allah mm. Akbar. You, you know, in that same uh, vein, I want to because I think it's it's connected in how we approach Islamic knowledge in in general. Uh, we I've noticed in recent times. Uh, an unskilled and maybe an inappropriate use of uh, terminology by the average Muslim. Yeah. And I want to give some uh, context in regards to this. Uh, I would say traditionally in Muslim countries, mm-hmm. when an imam or a sheikh is asked a question, they'll usually give the answer. Uh, and it's usually one opinion. And uh, they may or may not mention the evidence yeah you know what i have seen here uh in the west is uh many like imams and shiuch and du'at it became kind of trendy to mention all the different opinions Mm -hmm. and uh then they may say you know this is the opinion that i follow you know what i mean as if you don't want to offend anybody right so you're trying to almost pick the path of least resistance or least offense and what that has spawned is a culture of oh there's you basically have four options to do whatever you want so it it, it's actually caused a lot of confusion within the muslim community and i've seen modernists latch on to this yeah so what i've seen modernists do is they'll say uh the opinion so they they don't start ground oh i'm hanafi and i'm i'm basically picking say all the hanafi uh you know i follow the hanafi madhab and then maybe my sheikh has taught me something that is different from the hanafi madhab and those particular issues i'm following different because of this sheikh who's also from a more learned source than myself yeah it's become now that oh you know what i have options in absolutely everything i do mm-hmm. i have four options and for modernists sometimes their options are guided not by what's closer to the truth, but what's closer to their desires. Yeah. And because, because some of the modernists say, actually, this is what I feel is right. You know what I mean? And they won't even have an evidence for it. They won't have an opinion to justify it. This is what I feel is right. And this is what I want to do. But those who try to at least show the guise of like, I'm trying to follow something within an Islamic framework will say, uh, this is the opinion I follow. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So you'll have uh, a person who will follow an obscure opinion of Imam Malik and say, okay, you know what? I'm, I'm Maliki. That's why I do this. Mm-hmm. Or I follow this opinion of Imam Malik. But maybe in everything else, they follow Hanbali Madhab or yeah. they follow like a Hanafi or a Shafi. So it becomes almost like I will just pick and choose. Yeah. And, and and sometimes it kind of goes, this is like their, mo- this may be the motivation behind it is I just want to pick and choose whatever mm-hmm. that appeals to me. But at the same time, you know, some of the Aleman scholars, whether knowingly or unknowingly or trying to not offend people, have just consistently said, these are all the opinions. And so it's caused the, that confusion for the general person. Mm-hmm. But it then has been, um, you know, almost capitalized by the modernists. Yeah. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, because I've, for example, I've seen somebody who does not know basic fiqh terminology, mm-hmm. just take an article yeah. and start saying these are the different opinions. They've literally just taken an article from online and say this on this particular fiqh issue, oh, these are all these different opinions. Yeah. You know what I mean? Without, and I guarantee you they haven't read one book of fiqh. They, if they mention the opinion of Imam Mashafi, they haven't even read a book of, you know, of Imam Shaf. Yep. Do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, because I would say that 
for a sheikh to discuss the different opinions, they have to at least do it in, with a student of knowledge. So they have some understanding or some, you know, context mm -hmm. behind yeah, it, you know. But now when you do it with the average person, uh, have we set ourselves to be in the state of chaos? You know what I mean? So what? how, how should the average Muslim approach their own practice of the deen with the different opinions of, uh, of fiqh? Because you have obviously on one end, taqlid, mm -hmm. uh, where this is my only right way yeah. and that's it. And then you have this other end where the average Muslim thinks they're a mujtahid. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course. So, it's a sad thing. So what, what, what's your uh, opinion on that? Like, what's uh, your... Uh, uh, look, I, I disagree with a person simply throwing out four, five, six opinions yeah. and say we have the choice of choosing whatever we want. This is inappropriate. Yeah. Because in the end, we have a statement from the ulama. Man tazandaq. Whoever follows the easiest view and opinion in every madhab they would essentially lose their faith. And this is a reality. Like you said, you know, people that are following that approach, they're not doing what they're doing because they love Allah and His Rasul. They're doing it because they have a sense of guilt that I'm still Muslim, but I want to hold on to it as much as I can, but they say I have my own pathway, my leeway. So let's look into the madahib and all the obscure opinions for scholars that we never heard of before. Let's go online and search. So they'll find opinions online that they can basically bring forth and say, well, so-and-so said this. Who is so-and-so? I don't know who he is, but he seems to be a knowledgeable scholar because his name sounds pretty cool. So I'm going to take by his opinion. Subhanallah. And this is the problem that we face today. People are ignorant of their deen. Now, subhanallah, if we're to ask any of these brothers who say that, oh, there are four opinions, the Shafi'i, the Hanafi, the Maliki, the Hanbali, and I'm free to choose whatever I want. My question to any one of them is, what is the purpose of a madhab? Right? Just ask them. And I'm, I guarantee you, no one will have a proper answer. It's not that you can pick and choose. If you look at the madhab, the best way to describe a madhab is like an app on a phone. Now, if I'm to ask you, what does an app do for you? It makes it easier for you to, kind of, to kind of get to an, a certain service. So as opposed to going online, typing in the website, and this streamlines the whole process. A to Z, let's say your bank, rather than going typing out your bank's name, searching, pushing, you push a button, you're in the app, in your account, Bang, you can deposit, you can transfer, you can buy, you can whatever it is, right? So the app is designed with that intent of making things easy to streamline the process of you using a service. The madhab, the same thing. So the, you look at it in that perspective. The madhab is designed uh, with an end goal of you becoming more like Rasulullah. So rather than you going searching in the books of hadith and, mm. and finding you getting lost, what it does for you is trying to bring everything to you. This is the path. This Alim Abu Hanifa, rahmatullahi alayhi, or Shafi'i, or Malik, or Ahmad ibn Hanbal, or other scholars, they've actually done all the hard work for you. They streamlined this process, and it's this, 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 this is to get to the end point. What is the end point? That you become more like the Prophet. That's the whole intent. Nowadays, it's not and the isn't case. Isn't it true that traditionally, yeah. students of knowledge, they are grounded in one madhab? Yes. And they practice one madhab. They know it. That's like their foundational yeah. madhab. Of course. Before they even go into advanced level oh, yeah. to uh, discuss other opinions and other madhahib, yeah. or even to like, and that's a different level to give it ijtihad now, like, yeah. which is like maybe stronger opinions, or even if there's discourse within that madhahib, yeah. you, you know what I mean? You could have difference of opinions within that madhahib, mm -hmm. right? So foundationally, it's like yeah. they're following, almost everyone is following one madhahib. Yeah, definitely. But then here with people who pick and choose, mm -hmm. like you said, there's no foundation, right? Mm -hmm. um, so if, if we're to go back and ask them, okay, what are you? I'm just picking and choosing. There's no such thing as picking and choosing. And this goes back to what we call a person choosing by his whims and desires. This is not appropriate. You lose your faith. And this is what we're seeing. People becoming so negligent of the it means nothing. The other problem is when you have, let's say, a person, uh, let's say an imam in this example, giving uh, the jama'ah, okay, you have one, two, three, four, Abu Hanifa said this, Madik said this, Shafi'i said this, Ahmad ibn Hanbal, Rahmatullahi alayhi ajma'in said this. What you're doing over here is distancing the jama'ah from qala Allah, qala Rasulullah. Essentially, you're equating the opinion of a scholar and putting it on par with the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And then, without you knowing it, you're saying, forget the Qur'an and Sunnah, we have these four opinions, and they are for scholars that are amazing and great. So subhanAllah, what are you doing? You are shifting the focus from the, the usul, the principles that you should follow, and now putting it upon individuals. 
And this is where you're prone to massive errors, be it in terms of your aqidah, your fiqh, your approach. Lastly, Dr. Said is that, you know, in terms of a student who studies uh, the madhahib, right? Studying a madhahib doesn't simply entail learning all the opinions uh, that is covered within the scope of one madhahib. Um, of course, let's say, because I did the Hanbali Madhab. Hmm. When you study the Hanbali Madhab, you're taught in every chapter the opinions that are there with the proofs. This is within the same Madhab. And what is the strongest based upon the uh, evidence provided for that opinion, right? Um, so you ha- you're grounded in one Madhab. At the same time, you're also grounded in the principles of the Madhab. So this is what we call the Usul al-Fiqh, pertinent to the Madhab. Um, we have what we call Madhab al-Mutakallimin, which is, in essence, the uh, Maliki, Shafi'i, and Hanbali Madhab. They fall within this regulation, being mutakallimin. What that means, essentially, is not ilm al-kalam or the philosophy. What it simply means is that we'll put aside differences in terms of the furu'ah, the opinions that we have for the specific masai and fiqh, and we'll come together with broad principles that we can all agree upon, through which we can extract the the, the, uh, ahkam, the rulings from the proofs of the Qur'an and Sunnah. The Hanafi madhab is different. It's called, you know, Ashab uh, al-Fuqaha or Madhab al-Fuqaha, where they, they looked at the views of Imam Abu Hanifa rahmatullah and, and extracted from them the principles and guidelines of the madhab. So it's a little bit different. But overall, you have to be grounded in one in order for you to understand the approach. So if I'm going to jump between two sides and say, well, Abu Hanifa said this, I'm going to take this because it sounds the easiest. And Malik said this because this sounds easy. I'm, you lose your faith. SubhanAllah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, so for the average Muslim, so the average Muslim, what, what do you think they should do? How, the, how should they approach it? So, should they learn one madhab? Should they, uh, or uh, because if, if we look at like realistically, <clears throat> either you are raised knowing that madhab like properly, as you mentioned. You know, yeah. a lot of people, they don't even know why, how they pray oh, yeah. or, you know, many of the reasons they just, okay, I saw someone praying like this, whatever. Should the average Muslim, so not even student knowledge, an average Muslim, should they just follow a trusted sheikh, learn from that sheikh, whatever that sheikh's madhab is? Yeah. Or should they um, aim to follow the madhab that their family was raised with or traditionally found within their family yeah. and find, seek people who will teach them how to practice that madhab? What is... Your thoughts on that for the average Muslim? Yeah, so you have two things. A person, an average Muslim wants to learn academically. It's different, unlike someone who's in the masjid who does not have the time Mm. to learn academically. So let's look at the first condition where a person, I mean the second one, where a person is in the masjid, okay, and they don't have access to, or they don't have time even, to go and seek knowledge academically. So in this case, you're upon the madhab of the person you're asking. So there's, let's say there's an imam in the masjid who's trustworthy, who taught him how to pray salah. He didn't tell him it's this madhab or that madhab, just pray like this because Rasulullah did this, khalas. So he would basically follow the madhab of the one who he is asking. So this is the condition of the vast majority. You're not required to go and get yourself a, a bachelor's degree or diploma in any madhab, no. But technically speaking, when a person decides to make that jump and learn academically, uh, whether you know it or not, and I tell brothers this, whether you like it or not, you are following a madhab. How is that possible? Well, if you're going to go to Turkey, um, you'll be raised up in the Hanafi madhab or taught in the Hanafi madhab. You're going to go to Egypt. It's either the Hanafi or Shafi'i. You're going to go, for example, to Sudan, Maliki madhab. You're going to go to Malaysia because now they're opening up. They have a few universities there, Shafi'i madhab. You go to Saudi and the Gulf area overall. Hanbali Madhab. It depends on where you're going, whether you know it or not, whether they tell you the books you're studying will direct you in that path. So when you come back, let's say after taking four years of your life studying, alhamdulillah, gaining that knowledge, that that ma'rifah, and you come back, at that point you would know definitely what you're upon. You go to a masjid or a musalla and you become the imam, the shaykh there. People ask you questions. You're going to answer in light of what you've been taught, which is a madhab, of course. So, I mean, indirectly, yes, you'll be following a madhab. But those who chose an academic path, they have that choice afterwards, depending on where they're going. And do you have advice for uh, imams and du'at who get kind of caught up in this culture? And I don't know, sometimes, you, you know, Sheikh, Allah Adam, if it's based on that motivation of like being able to, yeah. not necessarily, I don't know, show off is the right word, but, you know, just try to, um, you know, show people I know diff- different opinions, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, uh what advice would you have to these different imams who just say, oh, oh, there's the last be asked, oh, there's an opinion on this and there's an opinion on that. And then, and then at the end, they might 
say, oh, but you know, in my opinion is this and, uh, yeah. and, and it's, and so it's kind of left a little bit of confusion. It's like, okay, the Imam's opinion is this, mm. but then he's also mentions these other opinions, which are yeah. perfectly also fine. And so it kind of leaves a person uh, lost. And then yeah. also in that culture of like, hey, there's so many opinions for everything. And, you know, yeah. we could just do whatever's easy. You know, uh, in a din and yusran, you know what I mean? That's Allah, how they... <laughs> well, Dr. Sayyid, in this regard, my advice would be, it's a guideline, uh, uh, a fundamental, that truth is not synonymous with any one person's name. So the more that you kind of direct your jama'ah as an imam, as a da'iyah, as a shaykh, the more that you direct your jama'ah, those who listen to you, who learn from you, to take by the Qur'an and sunnah, Alhamdulillah, you'll be following the sunnah of the Prophet and the sunnah of the tabi'een, the tabi'een, tabi'een, right? You're going down that pathway of doing the same as they did. But once you begin to associate the truth with one individual, there's a problem here because maybe the opinion that you're taking by is marjuh. It's weaker. Um, doesn't have that you know adequate evidence behind it. And the view of someone else, another scholar, is stronger because he received a certain proof that you, the, the scholar that you take by did not receive. Right, and uh, you find a lot of reasons for this to begin with. I mean, Imam Ibn Taymiyyah, rahmatullahi alayhi, spoke of the reasons why scholars differ, mm. and he mentioned many of them. But that's not our topic. But overall, you have Subhanallah in this regard um, the importance of directing people who listen to you, learn from you, by the Quran and Sunnah, and not to stick to a person because a person is not ma'asum. We all are prone to error. We make our fair share of mistakes. Subhanallah. We might even say something that is absolutely wrong, not knowing it. And we might even attribute a certain opinion to an imam who never said it. How, 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 how often has that happened? Subhanallah. And recall, I can give you many examples of this same thing happening over and over. Wallah al-Mustan. So the safest thing is to direct the people to the Quran and Sunnah. Hmm. Yeah. So would you say then, the best way to approach it is to say uh, the ruling is this, give maybe just one ruling and give the evidence yeah. from the Quran and the Sunnah without uh, overburdening. You know, there could be certain situations where it may uh, merit, yeah. you know, mentioning, yeah. you know, a, a different opinion, but not as a general rule, yeah. you know, to the average person, course, you know what I mean? Because yeah. they're not like in a fiqh yeah. class. Of course. I mean? Well, I think there's a distinct, we should distinguish between Masail that were discussed in terms of the fiqh and that have been, you know, that we, in terms of the five pillars of Islam, you take what you believe to be the strongest as an imam, you choose that, you see what is strongest based on evidence that you, you think is closer to the uh, Quran and Sunnah, and you take that to your jama'ah, teach them that one approach, and don't just say it's simply this approach, but rather say, we're, I'm doing this, I'm teaching you this because Allah and His Rasul have said this, for example. Um, but in terms of masail ijtihadiyah that were never found during Rasulullah as time, Bitcoin, for example, and other issues, I can't simply stick to one opinion here because these are masail, you know, ijtihadiyah, and you'll have people who are from each of the madahib that talked about these issues in depth. So I can then at that point discuss it openly and mention that, yes, there is a khilaf in this issue. Why is the khilaf present? It's because the scholars, you know, are looking at this from this perspective and they have proof for this from this way. And you can mention that and discuss it with them. Of course, it's not for your average person. Rather, you make a point of informing people that this is a academic session and a session of ilm and knowledge. We're talking about something that is not, that is not usually talked about. It's different. And, you know, in that way you can go about teaching them different opinions, but here not to choose what is easiest, because here, even if you ask a sheikh back, I recall when Bitcoin first became a thing years back, some scholars simply said, I basically recuse myself. I will not speak on this topic to begin with. Why? I don't have any ilm in this. Mm. But ulama have discussed it from this perspective and that perspective. At this point, I am unsure as to what is best because Allahu A'lam. Reality is, people go search online for these issues. They'll know about them maybe more than you do as an imam. So if you're to basically do a research and you're still unsure, you can inform them that these two opinions are there. But Allahu A'lam, I will not give my opinion in this regard. I will look into it further, discuss it, and then afterwards come to you with the stronger opinion that I feel is the strongest opinion. That could be one approach. The other pr approach is that, you know, you look into the issue thoroughly. You can inform them that there's more than one opinion, but I feel the strongest view is this because of A, B, and C, these proofs. That could be another approach. Hmm. So there's that distinction between masail that pertain to what the scholars have discussed in the past, 
and Masai that we discussed today. And I agree, we shouldn't be opening this up to everyone that there's 10 opinions or this, that. You'll confuse people, subhanAllah. Yeah. yeah, because especially nowadays, this culture of uh, searching for different opinions that oh, yeah. suit your you know, personal desire, oh, yeah. right? It's, there, there is a big culture that, and I think there's some different factors that are involved. Oh, yeah. And I think one of the factors that goes under the radar is and, and, and you know we've we've spoken about before of like sometimes you know these commercialized condensed courses that oh, yeah. are presented to muslims oh, yeah. and so then a muslim attends this and then they get this idea that they have knowledge of all these different opinions you mm. know what i mean yeah, yeah, of course. uh and uh and so it, combined with you know how people are what pe- some people already desire you know um it's, uh, you know, led to a certain type of oh, I agree with atmosphere, you, the, you know what it, I mean? It leads to chaos. And if you yeah. give too much information in a short sp- span of time, yeah. and you've been really based it or grounded it in قَالَ اللَّهِ قَالَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ Oh, there's four opinions here. Mm. So what am I to take by? Mm. I don't know. Yes. Then that's not right. It's, as we discussed before, it's inappropriate. Mm. Hot topic, abortion. Mm-hmm. Now, the context in regards to uh, abortion from an Islamic perspective, mm-hmm is quite different than uh, a secular perspective. Yes, of so, course. Uh, Islamic societies, of course, are built upon encouraging marriage, encouraging having children, yes. encouraging uh, families, mm-hmm. developing healthy f- families, and at the same time, uh, prohibiting zina, mm-hmm. and even the pathways to zina. Okay? Yes. Now, Western liberal societies are built upon the foundation of maximizing personal pleasure, mm-hmm. okay, and your choices that are associated yeah. with maximizing your personal pleasure. So we could say the asal of like the Islamic uh, rulings on abortion is different than the oh, yeah. asal of like secular liberalism, mm-hmm. um, you know, issues in regards to abortion. Okay, now. Because of this issue coming into the forefront, uh, more and more, especially you see Muslims discussing it on social media, you see Muslims giving our Islamic rulings mm-hmm. or parroting Islamic rulings yeah. uh, in the context of secular liberalism. So mm-hmm. can you apply, like, can we apply like the Islamic rulings, for example, like, you know, people are talking about between, uh, you know, the permissibility between 40 to 120 days, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Depending on the yeah. madhab and whatnot. But again, the asal is yeah. different, generally speaking, than the asal of like, you know, permissibility of abortion um, within a secular liberal. So are, should we uh, use an Islamic ruling in a Western context like this? Mm-hmm. Because sometimes... The reason to do that yeah. is to appeal to a certain camp in the, in, a, in the Western society. So you might have like a left-leaning political camp and you might have a right-leaning mm-hmm. political camp. And so usually certain Islamic rulings are hidden, yeah. uh, you know, made to be uh, you know, quiet and covered and yeah. tucked away. And certain rulings, you come out, oh, you know, Islam agrees with you mm-hmm. between 40 to 120 days. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have this, you know. So uh, sh- is it appropriate for us to use Islamic rulings in this context, you know, given this is essentially how it's being used and, and, and yeah. utilized? Well, I don't agree that, you know, Islam should be brought into this to begin with because in modern societies, when people talk about um, abortion. It's not on account of, you know, Islamically being sound or not. It's more a life choice, a lifestyle choice. Mm-hmm. Um, you might have a trend that comes along saying that, oh, it's not trendy right now to have kids. Um, enjoy your life for an X amount of years before you do choose to have children afterwards. And even then, there might be some detriments to a person's choice. Oh, I don't want to have a kids right now because I haven't done this or that. So every time that they do get pregnant by accident, what happens then talking between you know a couple married couple of course when they do become pregnant what happens then is subhanallah you'll have them looking at this oh it's okay we have this leeway we can go down this route 
and that's not right because you're abusing the Islamic laws in this context. And it's not just in abortion, it's in many other fields as well where mm-hmm. you'll have someone bringing Islam into the mix because, well, we're Muslims and we don't want to feel that bad. And just to get rid of the guilt, this is what Islam says. You're misquoting over here. Uh, in relation to abortion, likewise, you can't simply just go back to a ruling that we have and think, okay, this is okay because I have this hadith or uh, this ayah or this scholar said whatever they said. You can't do that. Essentially, you are encouraged in Islam to have children. That is, you know, uh, well known. You don't have to kind of bring too many proofs to indicate this. This is something we find from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa to the companions in the hadith. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa said in the meaning of the hadith that uh, have children, uh, and he informed us, get married, to have children. This is the mm. purpose of marriage. Mm. And then he said that I will show off the large number of my ummah on that day, on Yom Al-Qiyamah, which is an indication that it's something that we should strive to in terms of uh, a marriage. We should strive to have as many kids as we can, alhamdulillah. Um, abortions, uh, one shouldn't look at them lightly. If there is, let's say, a medical reason, uh, there is something else. You cannot just simply say, that, okay, I have this option right now on the table. I can do this. No. The because the way it's presented that, yeah. in mm-hmm. secular liberal society is it doesn't matter the reason. Yeah. You have the choice. The reason could be inconvenience. The reason could be uh, poverty. You don't know if you're going to be able to provide for the person. Yeah. The reason could be zina. I don't want people to know I had an affair, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. It could be any reason. It's just like, Look, if I, are, I want to do it. Yeah, no, that's there, that's there are, the basically, yeah. you know what I mean? No, there are valid reasons, of course, but we're not looking, we're not looking at the valid reasons because yeah. this is not the conversation. Exactly. Uh, we're just looking at you know people using this as an excuse to go ahead with an abortion for no valid reason, mm. right? Um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala condemns that a person, you know, go ahead and kill a child out of fear for, you know, from poverty. So if someone fears poverty and they think, you know what, I have to basically preserve my resources. I, In the end, the risk come from Allah, comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He provides. So when you kind of are looking at it from this perspective that I don't want to ruin my lifestyle, what do you mean by that? Mm. This is what we hear from people today. I don't want to ruin my lifestyle, meaning that I don't think I will have enough to sustain my lifestyle at this point if I have a kid. So the thiqa and trust in Allah Azza wa Jal is taken out of the equation. And now you're trusting more in the means of dunya that's before you. You think that, you know what, if I don't have a kid, then uh, I can live my life more comfortably. Whereas in the hadith, we had that promise that if a person does get married, Allah Azza wa Jal will provide that risk. Mm-hmm. Subhanallah. So it's really a skewed perception of this whole uh, of the whole issue. You know, um, and this is the problem we have nowadays. People really abusing the ahkam of Islam, using it in a way that suits their own whims and desires. And this is what we're seeing over here, subhanAllah. SubhanAllah. Because uh, I think one of the uh, dynamics that occurs with, yeah. uh, with a lot of the way people manipulate Islamic rulings or they uh, you know, try to uh, appease uh, certain dem- demographics or certain... Uh, cultural norms within society is that uh, if you only look at for example what's allowed but not the context of why or when that's allowed Mm -hmm. or how that's allowed then you're abusing of course you know uh, for example that allowance Mm -hmm. and also islamic rulings don't live in a vacuum where there's no punishments for when you violate uh, certain restrictions. Yeah. Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So we're kind of living in a society where it's like you're free from like being held responsible with any Islamic punishments because there's no, yeah. you know, obviously logically speaking, you know, you're not living in an Islamic society. There's no qadi. There's no mm-hmm. one to implement it. Or the, mm-hmm. You know, whatever. Uh, so there's no threat of any type of legalistic type of punishment, the, really it's only your own taqwa that's going to put you in check you yeah. know, from doing many of the things that are haram, which are basically you know, free and legal to do within a secular liberal society. Mm-hmm. So on one so it's like, the, so to speak, the deck is stacked against mm-hmm. you know, living uh, or the objective of the, the sharia, yeah. essentially. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So there's no punishments and there's only like, Essentially, mm-hmm. you look at what's concet, you know, the concessions and the allowances. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's almost like you're practicing a lobotomized form of Islam. Like it's not fully functioning form yeah. of Islam. Yeah. You know what I mean? 
Well, to dial back a little bit, you mentioned something quite interesting. You said that you know we cannot just simply take cannot simply take rulings, ayat mm. hadith, uh, without understanding the context in which they were revealed or said. Mm. You know that brings to my mind something very specific. I'm sure you can relate to this, and that is uh, in the hadith, a famous hadith, where the Prophet said to the companions, "Samu antum wa kulu." So the Prophet told the companions, "You say Bismillah." Go ahead and eat. Mm. Now, if we're not to understand this, if we don't know the story behind this hadith, you can take this hadith grossly out of context and use it for everything today. You can say that, well, Rasulullah said, uh, say Bismillah and eat, meaning that whatever is out there, just say Bismillah and I'm good to go. That's not the hadith. The hadith is completely different. It was said in a specific light, and we have to understand it in that context, right? So looking at that narration, the story behind it, we do understand then why this hadith was said and what it applies to. But when you take it away from that context, you can misuse it. And this is not just for this, but for any other aspect of the Quran and the Sunnah. Once you distance the ayah, the hadith from the context, it can be abused. Mm -hmm. So you have to really understand the ayah and the hadith in its context for it to be understood. And this can be used in this method. And you also have people who you know, may, might want to mar the image of Islam by taking certain ayat out of context. Say, Look at this, the Quran says this. Hold on a moment, what's the context there? They never will tell you the context. We just found this. We can do that to anything today. Go to any previous scripture, take it, look at it in that context, and subhanAllah, you can do the same thing. But that is unfair. We shouldn't be doing that. So I'm just saying over here that with this concept or this issue, you're going to have people who take things out of context, believing that, you know what, this gives me a sense of safety, uh, of comfort. It gives me that buffer that I can feel good with, that mm. I'm not doing something haram. Because in the end, even if you want to modernize a certain aspect, you really have that lingering feeling within yourself, right? And I, this always brings back to my mind the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. said, Al-Ithmu ma haka fi nafsik wa nas. Meaning, and this is basically a telltale hallmark sign of sin. Rasulullah said, A sin is something that you're not comfortable with. It's like going up and down. And this happens. Sometimes you don't know if it's halal or haram, but you come to it, you're like, oh, I don't feel, this is really putting me, <laughs> making me uneasy. And I don't feel comfortable. This is a telltale sign. Hold off. Don't just go into it. Hold off. Take by those initial sensations that you have till you actually know if this is halal or haram. Right? Mm -hmm. And the second part, you don't want no one to see you doing this. So you're hiding away to do whatever it is that you think is doubtful. And this is what we find today. People, when they, they fall into this category, they grasp for any narration, any ayah, any hadith that would give them a sense of comfort to get rid of that feeling that they have on the inside. And just to end this point, I recall a few brothers came up to me. This is, you know, it never fails. Every year we have people like this who come up. Sheikh, you know, um, I'm in this condition. I'm facing this and I have a lot of problems debt, this, that. So is it halal for me to go buy a house on, on a mortgage? So brother, you set up the question in order for me to give you only one specific answer, mm. right? And that's unfair. You cannot do that, subhanAllah. But why has he come to me? That's the whole point, regardless of what I told him. But over here, what? why did he come to me? Mm. He's feeling uneasy. He wants a sense of assurance. Mm. So in one case, uh, the brother actually, he went to three or four different mashayikh. Each one told him, well, in the condition, it might be darura, or someone told him, no, you shouldn't. So he said to me, I want to hear yours. Why don't I hear? You've already been to three or four different people. Why would you bother with me? Hmm. He wants that sense of assurance that I feel comfortable. No, I'm not going to give it to you. He's still not, he's still, his heart's yes. not good with it yet. Yes, Allahu Akbar. This goes back to the hadith, subhanAllah. One of the uh, practices of jahiliyyah uh, was when they would bury the infant girls. Yes. Right? Mm -hmm. You know, subhanAllah, they say this is a women's issue. This is, you know, women have this right and try to uplift the condition of, of women. Mm. The vast majority of abortions happen to girls. Mm -hmm. If they find out the gender is a girl mm -hmm. in countries like India, China, Southeast Asia, this is where yeah. the vast majority of abortions yeah. are done when they find the gender is a girl. Allah. So... Subhanallah, anytime the creation tries to, to go towards something or they, it endeavors to do something better than what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, than the Creator has guided them towards, they will always fail and they'll always fall into destruction. Yeah. 
You know what I mean? It's like you, you end up harming yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, the w even when we look, we were talking about before, um, you know, issues of civil rights, for example. Yeah. You can't, you know, say like you can't tell somebody, okay, you know what? You're not allowed to say white pride, but I can say black pride. Because at the end of the day, then you're not on like you're never you are not coming to justice, and only Allah Subhanahu wa Taala can establish mm -hmm. ju justice. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, so when it comes to this issue of um, uh, of abortion, uh, what is uh, for the Muslim for a Muslim living in the West? What are the restrictions? Like what are uh, let's say um, what are the reasonable reasons? Mm -hmm. Okay, what are some acceptable reasons yeah. that abortion would be permissible, and what would be the time frame for that to occur? Well, the uh, we'll look at the second part, time frame. There's okay. a lot of khilaf in that to begin with. Yes, you might have some who go on the extreme end of saying 120 days. This is based on the hadith of uh, Mas'ud, I believe, Allahu mm. where you know the stages of the fetus as it forms before the life is breathed into that, into that you know um, that body. So as it's formed, it gets to 120 days, and that's when the malak, the angel, is sent to it, and then life is breathed into that, uh, into that, uh, you know, to the fetus. Um, some say as long as you get to that, just before that point. Mm. Then at that point, khalas, you're okay to do an abortion with a valid reason. Others say no, and uh, the minute that you know the uh, in the very first stage where it becomes you know uh, at the point of you know the sperm entering the the egg, that would you cannot do an abortion after that point, khalas. So basically, looking at maybe you know abortion in terms of uh, preemptive measures using a condom for example or you know something of that nature mm. that would be okay yes but then once you know that has already occurred and the sperm has entered into the egg and the the, the, the sister is pregnant خلاص, at that point some say that you know you should not look at any abortion at that point um, you might have for example and what's yeah. uh, before you move on because there isn't there a narration as well that the soul is breathed even earlier than 120 days. So, mm. what is the? Uh, well, I have to look. I, I have to look into this. But uh, what comes to my mind right now is the 100, 120 days. Okay. But there definitely could be other narrations in this regard. And that first opinion, uh, as I recall, after having looking looking through it, it um, you know they have definitely have evidence and proof. Mm. Uh, yeah. So that said, I mean, looking at the valid reasons. You might have, for example, and this is all under, of course, each and every individual. I look at these as being individual cases. It's not like a blanket ruling. Mm. So let's say a family has a certain urgent matter. They go to the doctor, go to the afterwards the scholar who would indicate that, yes, this is extremely deformed fetus, for example, right? And it's still in those early stages. Then that could be something you can look at for an abortion. Um, and, you know, there, are, there could be other things where, for example, the child is, has already died in the womb at that point, and now you have to take it out. Uh, that could be something else. Not an abortion, but this is something else altogether. But you'll have certain scenarios like this. But then not everything is in the area of ittifaq. That's the thing you have to understand. Mm. So as you're talking about this, you might have certain examples that we can talk about that if we say that, yes, it's okay in this situation, you'll have scholars would say, no, it's not. And it's inappropriate at that point. Um, one of the hot button issues is in terms of someone, you know, in terms of zina, for example, right? Um, some scholars will say, yes, once you get to that point where immediately it's known that zina had taken place, you take that at that point and give a plan B, for example. At that moment, that could be something you can look at as being lawful to save the shot off of that girl, for example, right? So these are some scenarios that come to mind right now. There could be others, but that's what comes to my mind right now, subhanAllah. What about... In the case of uh, like rape, yeah. Um, here, an ikhtisab would be more or less the example that I mentioned, hmm. right? So this would be more so than simply zina, where a sister, Allah, this happens to her. In that case, um, the abortion can be done immediately to rid that sister of anything that you know, Subhanallah. Yeah. So I mean, this could be uh, a scenario definitely where you know you, uh, an abortion can be looked at. Yeah, mm. but generally speaking, like say uh, husband and wife, uh, they uh, yeah. 
had relations and uh, they're suspecting, oh, did, uh, you know, was there fertilization that occurred? So they they want to take the morning after pill. That would not yeah. be something that's well, permissible. Well, I, I would advise against that, definitely. Yeah. If a person is using a condom, that's yeah. something else. Yeah, um, yeah, that's preventative, right? Yeah, but preventative. this is now like yeah. your... So at that yeah. point, you, don't, you wouldn't take you wouldn't take that. SubhanAllah, a person might think it's better for me at this moment, but you never know where the khair Allah has put for you. It could be in this child that comes forth, bi'idhinillahi mm. ta'ala. So simply taking a morning after pill, plan B, that essentially would not be something you look at as a get, you know go-to measure. Mm. If a person doesn't plan to have a child, then you know you got to take preventative measures beforehand, mm. as opposed to doing it afterwards. Subhanallah. Yeah. And is it true that uh, many of the contemporary like ahnaf they actually have a different opinion than uh, the, some of the more uh, you know, uh, s- previous uh, scholars amongst the Ahnaf in regards to the 120 days. It seems like more of the contemporary actually have a more stricter stance yeah. opposing it. Uh, and some of the uh, reasoning or some of the commentary in regards to that is because now we have more of an idea of, through modern technology mm-hmm. of what happens inside the womb. Yeah. Like, for example, you can have like as early as six weeks and mm-hmm. a little bit earlier going to have a heartbeat that's detected yes right and before you wouldn't know that you wouldn't be able sure. to uh, you know uh, discover in, that in light of this being from the Hanafi, Allah okay I had to look into this inshallah but no barakallah if you have um, anything you could share on that I would be interested in that definitely you know that's something that uh, I've come across that you know the modern uh, Ahnaf yeah. they actually uh, have a differing opinion because it's a Hanafi as you mentioned it's a yeah. Hanafi opinion and it seems the most strict opinion is the Maliki opinion mm-hmm. where uh, you know there's no excuse you yeah. can't have you can't do yeah. abortion at all uh, is there from your from what you know so we talked about deformity and we're living in an era of like we're getting to an era of designer babies like where people yeah. want to genetically like choose color of like the eyes and all of these different things you know and now with like genetic man- manipulation mm-hmm. so what what is the threshold of like a child being deformed where you know because what if uh, you know a child is going to have a disability or oh, mm-hmm. a disability that's it that's aborted right mm-hmm. but it could be a very viable child and we've had whether it's Muslim or non-Muslims who have yeah. lived with disabilities and have lived great lives, oh, yeah. have contributed greatly to society. Uh, so where is the line for that, you know, in terms of that being as uh, a legitimate re- reason, uh, deformity? Well, in terms of deformities, like I said, this is not a blanket ruling. Yeah. This is a case-by-case basis, right? Okay. So I can't really mention to you that this, this, or this. Mm. In the end, it is the choice of the family, whether they choose to do that or not. But overall, if a person is patient, Alhamdulillah. But I, I can research and look for you, uh, look for, you know, what the ulama have mentioned, because these are contemporary matters. Mm. They would require, you know, some uh, research. Inshallah. Okay. Inshallah.